following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Now this morning, we are in the book of Isaiah, carrying on our series in Isaiah. Still a couple more weeks, a few weeks to go to finish off this series before we dive into Joseph. And so Isaiah 63 is where we're going to be this morning. You can open up your Bibles, open up your Bible app if you've got one of those. Christina Wilson, one of our amazing youth workers and youth leaders, is going to come and read the passage for us. Thanks, Christina. A reading from Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 to 6. Who is this coming from Edom? From Bosra, with his garments stained crimson. Who is this, robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Why are your garments red, like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood splattered my garments, and I stained all my clothing. It was for me the day of vengeance. The year for me to redeem had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm achieved salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger, And in wrath, I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. Well, that's a happy passage, isn't it? Yeah. So just aren't aren't you pleased that we just read that scripture together and meditated on the goodness of God? Such a comforting part of scripture. Doesn't that just make you feel all warm and gooey inside to read about blood being splattered on the ground? It is a pretty difficult passage, this one. If you just have a little scroll again down some of those words and those phrases, there's some difficult language in here. I mean, I know I said that Isaiah, this part of Isaiah was going to be all full of hope and love and promise and and good things. But there is this one passage that's quite challenging. But I thought, you know, we have this commitment here to preach all of Scripture and not avoid the difficult parts, right? That's something we try and commit to. And so I thought, well, you can't pick and choose. You know, you can't just always preach the happy stuff. Sometimes there's passages like this are in the Bible. We might wish they weren't, but they're here, so we're going to have to do something with them, aren't we? Yes. Glad you came to church today, aren't you? So some difficult language in here. I mean, this is pretty gory stuff. Uh, This is pretty violent imagery that's going on in this this, uh, passage. There's there's blood-stained clothes. There's people being crushed, people being trampled, blood poured out on the ground. It's not comfortable, is it? And it, it raises questions. Raises difficult questions, I think, about God and, and what he's up to in this sort of passage. It's, it's passages like this that have led people like Richard Dawkins to say things like this. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A pity unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. I think he might have just gone to synonyms.com and 
looked up a whole lot of interesting words there. But you have to admit, this, when you look at this passage in Isaiah 63, you can kind of see how people reach this conclusion. Yeah, I mean, you have to admit, it, it's passages like this that are quite disturbing and full of violent imagery, and they paint a certain picture of God that some people find very, very difficult. And it raises the questions of, well, who is this God that we're worshiping here? We love the picture of God as being full of grace and full of love and the promise-keeping God, the God we're singing about this morning, the God who's always working and He'll never leave us. But then you get this God and you get this picture. And it stirs these questions of, well, is God fundamentally violent? Is God a bully? Is, is God just out to get people? Is He a tyrant? Is He vindictive? Is he bloodthirsty? I mean, this passage is full of bloodlust. It's just a difficult, difficult picture of God to try and get our heads around. So I want to take an honest look at this passage with you this morning and just ask these questions and wrestle with these questions honestly. I want to place this passage in the context of the biblical story, which is so important that we do that, uh, and then start to ask some questions of what does this mean for us in the way we see God and relate to God today. So let's just walk through it and understand what's happening here. The, the, the passage is framed around a question and answer. Okay, so you have this back and forth scenario. The first question is, who is this coming from Edom, from Bozrah, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forth in the greatness of his strength? It's this picture of, of a warrior coming back from battle. And you can picture someone on the, who's, who's come from the battlefield and he's coming over the horizon, returning to his city. And the people of the city are asking, who's this? Who is this warrior? What's his story? What's this battle that he's, that he's just been fighting? He's come from Edom. And Edom is the traditional enemy of Israel. In fact, Edom was the oldest enemy that Israel had. They'd been fighting Edom longer than they'd been fighting anyone else. The, the conflict between Israel and Edom goes back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Isaiah was written. Bozrah is just the capital of Edom. And so you have this ancient enemy of Israel being portrayed here. The warrior is coming back from Edom. And in the context of this passage, Edom represents not only just the nation of Edom, but all nations. Because later on, God tramples all the nations down. So this warrior is coming back from, from Edom, and he responds to this question by saying, the end of verse 1, it is I proclaiming victory, mighty to save. So clearly, he's been victorious. There's no question here as to who's won the battle. This, this guy returning from the battlefield, he has won a decisive victory over his enemies. He has totally crushed, totally destroyed his enemies. And then the second question in verse 2, why are your garments red? like those of one treading the winepress. So this warrior has these red clothes. They've been stained in red, so like someone's been trampling a winepress. You know the old winepresses that you'd, you'd trample the grapes with your feet, with your bare feet, crush them all up, and you get grape juice all over yourself? He looks like that. His garments are covered in this, in this red and this crimson. And then the shocking revelation comes... In his answer in verse 3, I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood splattered my garments and, and I stained all my clothing. What we realize is this crimson stain on the clothes of the warrior is blood. And it's the blood of his enemies. And so this has been a gory fight. 
This has been a gory battle. This has been close combat. This has been hand-to-hand combat, and it has been brutal, and it has been gruesome, and his enemies are now lying strewn all over the battlefield, and this warrior is now returning victorious, but not without a really difficult, long, hard struggle on the battlefield. And as he goes on, he describes the nature of this battle with those difficult, difficult images of people being crushed and trampled and wrath being poured out and blood being splattered on garments, all of those images that are so hard for us to hear. But as you step back from this passage, you you cannot avoid the, the, the conclusion that the person being described here is God. And that God is, is, this is not someone who's rebelling. This is not some other messenger of God. This is God himself who is returning from this battlefield, right? We know this because God talks about bringing salvation. He talks about judging the nations. This is the role God has. So God here is being portrayed as a warrior. God is the one who is returning from the battlefield. God is the one who has crushed his enemies. That's not easy to hear, is it? It makes you uncomfortable to hear that. But just, I just want to let that image sit with you for a minute. I want you just to think about this. God is depicted as a warrior. Now, how do you feel about that? Thinking about God as a warrior. It's not that comfortable, is it? I don't think I've heard this room quite so silent before. It's hard to think about God as a warrior. Because we, I think we gravitate to a whole lot of other images of God before warrior. We like to think of God as Father. That's a nice one, right? Um, we like thinking about God as our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. That one I can get into. That's, that's lovely. Uh, God as our bridegroom. That's another comforting image. But God is our warrior. That's difficult because it's got all those connotations of violence. So what do we do with this? I think part of the reason it's so difficult is because we have a really hard time reconciling this idea of God as a warrior who would do this kind of thing to his enemies with who Jesus is in the New Testament. Because Jesus is so gentle and meek and mild, and yet the God in the Old Testament seems like this, at times, violent sort of character who just dishes out punishment on his enemies. And it's, it's, it can be difficult trying to reconcile these two things, the God of the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament. And you end up in the kind of situation Richard Dawkins is talking about, where the God of the Old Testament seems like this unpleasant character. And you almost have a split personality. Are we talking about two different gods, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament? Does God fundamentally change who he is? Well, let me take you to a passage in the New Testament which begins to bring all of this together. Turn in your Bible all the way over to Revelation, the book of Revelation, and almost to the end of Revelation, Revelation chapter 19. This is where we find these strands coming together that go all the way back to Isaiah 63. Now, I want to read out a chunk of this because I want you to get the picture. And as I read this, listen for that imagery in Isaiah 63 because here's where it is fulfilled. Uh, Starting in verse 11, Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on them that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. 
The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now can you hear that imagery from Isaiah 63? You've got those same sorts of words and those same sorts of phrases cropping up again. So just look at what's happening here in verse 11. John sees a vision of heaven opening, and there's a rider on a white horse. Now, white in Revelation is the color of victory. It is the color of conquest. Not always good victory. Not always a conqueror who is good. Earlier in Revelation, you have one one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse was a white horse, and that's evil. So it could be the conquest of evil. So this horse is coming, representing victory, representing conquest, and the rider on the white horse has the name Faithful and True. From that, we know that this person is Jesus. Because earlier in Revelation, Jesus is described as the Faithful and True Witness. So what John is seeing here is a picture of Jesus himself riding on this white horse representing victory. Jesus is coming with the armies of heaven and look at his intention in verse 11. With justice, he judges and wages war. Now, how do you like that about Jesus? What happened to little gentle Jesus, meek and mild? Right? What happened to Jesus, let the children come to me and sit on my knee? What happened to baby Jesus in the manger? This is Jesus now coming on a white horse of victory and conquest, and his whole purpose is to bring war, is to bring this kind of justice that is going to require struggle, that is going to require battle. This is a very different Jesus from the one most of us are used to reading about in the Gospels, isn't it? But this is who Jesus is, is part of who Jesus is. This is a depiction of... Of Jesus, We need to allow this to form part of our image of the person of Jesus. He's not just gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He is also Jesus, the conqueror, who comes to judge and make war. That's why there is no conflict between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because you can come all the way back to Isaiah 63, and you can see these images of the warrior. And then you can come to the New Testament and see these images are fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the one who judges the nations. Jesus is the one who's got the robe dipped in blood. You even have this image here of the winepress of God's wrath. Jesus is the one who is trampling the winepress of the wrath of God. He is fulfilling all of these images that Isaiah has talked about back in Isaiah 63. So that image of the warrior in Isaiah is a prophecy about Jesus. It's it's not just that the God of the New Testament and the Old Testament are the same. It's that 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 prophecy is specifically talking about Jesus. He is the fulfillment. He's right there in the Old Testament. That's who he's talking about. So Jesus here is depicted as a warrior, and he's depicted as, as someone who is bringing about this judgment on the nations, who is bringing about the wrath of God, who is expressing the wrath of God. So let me just talk a little bit about what this means, the wrath of God, because it's a difficult concept. And I think as we understand a little bit more about this, we can understand what's going on in this passage. The wrath of God is, I think, best defined as God's holy anger against sin. Okay, if you want a short, concise definition, the wrath of God is God's holy anger against sin. When we sin... 
When, when we dishonor God in any way, whether we realize it or not, we, we are, what is happening is we are provoking God's anger. Now, we, we don't necessarily think that's what's happening, but whenever we sin, big ways, small ways, whatever it is, we are provoking the anger of God. God's not easily angered, right? Scripture tells us that. He is slow to anger, but eventually he gets angry. Eventually, we provoke the anger of God. So let me give you uh, um, an, an illustration that might help explain this. Imagine that you're walking along, and you see someone playing a beautiful violin. And it's clearly a really expensive instrument, and it's a really precious instrument, and it's making a beautiful sound. And then as you're watching, that person stops playing, and they take the violin, and they just start smashing it on the ground. And they just start trashing this expensive instrument, just wrecking it, bashing it. Now, how do you feel? Shocked, maybe. Surprised, maybe a little bit angry. Now imagine that's your violin. Imagine you own the violin and you see someone taking that violin and just trashing it, smashing it on the ground. Now you feel a bit more angry now? seeing your precious instrument there being trashed on the ground. This is how God feels when we sin. When we take something that is precious, which is our lives, right? our, our own hearts, and we take something that belongs to God, that's ourselves, something priceless, like the image of God within us, and we just start trashing that. When we do things that just are totally self-gratifying, just utterly self-absorbed, that reject God, that dishonor God, when we make a wreck of our lives and circumstances and we damage ourselves and we damage other people, we damage our marriages, our friendships, we damage families, we damage our communities or our organizations or our, or our societies, when we do these things, it is like taking that precious instrument and smashing it on the ground. I know you don't feel like that's what's happening, but in God's eyes, you are taking this beautiful instrument that is created for, for pleasure and enjoyment and just trashing it. And that makes God angry. Now, why is he angry? Because he doesn't like you? No. The, the whole idea of God's wrath is based on the fact that he does love you. If God didn't love you, he wouldn't care, right? Like if God didn't love you, why would he care what you did with your life? He'd be completely unconcerned. God's wrath is an aspect of his love. There is no distinction between God's wrath and his love. God loves you, and therefore he gets angry when you make a, a wreck of your life. And, and just walk away from him. Just like you parents know when your kids make reckless decisions, you get angry at them. Why? Because you love them. Because you want more for them than what they're doing with their lives right now. It's exactly how God feels. His wrath is an expression of his love. He loves you, so he is jealous for you. And he desires that you would be formed into his image. Not just this distorted, bent out of shape, selfish image. So that invokes his anger. His anger comes out of the fact that he loves you and wants the best for you. But that's the wrath of God. Now, here's the uncomfortable truth. Every single one of us, because we're sinful, we're all broken, right? No distinction between any of us. Because we are all sinful people, we all deserve that wrath, right? We've all provoked God to anger in our lives. We all deserve his wrath and his judgment. I know that's uncomfortable to hear. 
That's the reality of the biblical story. Every one of us deserves the wrath of God. We all stand under the judgment and the wrath of God. Ephesians tells us we are by nature, by nature, deserving of the wrath of God. That is where we stand. So in the first instance, you need to be able to read these passages and see yourself as an enemy of God who deserves everything that God's enemies get in that passage. That's very difficult, but that'll give you a picture of your own condition before God. It's us who deserve to be trampled. Is that right? It's us who deserve to be crushed. It's us who deserve to have our blood shed. That's what we deserve. We, deserve we, we have made ourselves God's enemies by rejecting him and rebelling against him. We deserve exactly what is described in these passages. And you have to be able to sit with that before you can move on in the story. So there's the uncomfortable truth. We're all deserving of the wrath of God. We all sit under his judgment. We've all made ourselves his enemies. Now, have you had enough bad news? There's some good news coming. This is amazing. Are you ready? Okay, have a look at this. This is going to blow your mind. Come back to Isaiah 63. There is a detail in this text I want to show you. Come back to this image of the warrior and have a look at his garments again. These garments that are stained in blood. Now, here's my question. When were these garments stained in blood? If you have a look in Isaiah 63, you have a warrior who is returning from battle. He's coming back from the battle. So clearly, these garments were stained in blood during the battle, which is now over. And therefore, the blood on his robes is the blood of his enemies that he's just conquered because he's returned from the battlefield. This must be the blood of his enemies. But come back to Revelation. You sort of need to read these two passages side by side to get this. But look at Jesus in Revelation 19. He too has a robe that is dipped in blood. But notice, he is not returning from a battle. He is preparing for a battle. The final battle has yet to come. As you read these verses, the final battle hasn't happened yet. That doesn't come until later on. Jesus has come with the armies of heaven. He's riding on the white horse, but he hasn't fought the battle yet. The battle is still ahead of him. Therefore, the question is, well, whose blood is on his robe then? And here's the answer, his own. Come on, somebody say amen. That's amazing. It is his own blood that is covering his robe. What you have here in the middle of one of the most violent passages in, in the whole Bible, and one of the most gruesome and hard to understand passages, you have a glimpse of the sacrifice of Jesus for your sin. His robe is covered in the blood of his own sacrifice. And that points us straight to the cross, which is where that sacrifice was made. What happened on the cross? Jesus suffers and dies and takes upon himself the wrath of God. He takes upon himself your sin. He takes upon himself the punishment for everything that you've done that has invoked the anger of God. And that's been plenty of stuff. But on the cross, Jesus is there and the wrath of God is poured out upon him. Not, not that the father was angry with the son, that could never happen, but the father takes the wrath that you deserved and he channels it towards Jesus. He takes the punishment you deserve and he unleashes it upon the son so that the wrath of God is totally spent upon the, the one innocent son of God who takes your sin upon himself so that you could be freed for it. 
so that you could be set free from your own sin and be spared the judgment of God. So now, if you belong to Jesus, God's wrath that you rightfully deserve has been turned away from you. You are no longer under the wrath of God, even though you deserve it. You're still just as sinful. But now the wrath of God has been channeled away from you onto Jesus. So you are no longer an object of God's wrath. You are now an object of his grace and his mercy and his love. If you belong to Jesus, we're no longer under God's wrath. We deserve it, but now we're under the grace of God. That shows you just how significant the sacrifice of Jesus is for you. So this picture of Jesus as a warrior is still pointing towards the day when he is going to return. And that's still really going to happen. This, there is a day that is going to come when Jesus will return, not as a little vulnerable baby, but as a warrior coming to judge with a sword. But as he comes to judge, the whole judgment is based on what he has already done on the cross. The whole judgment, the whole essence of Jesus as a warrior is all predicated on the fact that he comes with a robe already dipped in his own blood, that he has died for you, for humanity, and his judgment is based upon his willingness to lay down his life so you could be spared the judgment of God. So Jesus comes as a judge, and for those who have rejected him, and for those who who have continued to make themselves God's enemies and who have refused God's offer of love, they remain under the wrath of God. The, the sacrifice of Christ does not cover their lives. They've made themselves enemies of God and therefore at the final judgment, they're separated from God for eternity. God's wrath is ultimately revealed and the punishment that is revealed against them is the exclusion from God's eternal kingdom that they're separated from God forever and they don't share, they don't participate in the eternal life that Christ brings. Now, that's, that's an uncomfortable truth, but it's part of the biblical story. I love the way C.S. Lewis describes it in The Great Divorce. He says, no one is in hell except by their own choice. And for those that end up there, it is simply God saying to them in the end, thy will be done. You know, I, either there's, He says there's only two options. Either we say in this life to God, your will be done, or God says to us in the end, your will be done. And he eternalizes the consequence of our decision in this life. That's simply all it is. God will eternalize the decision for or against Jesus that you make in this life in eternity. So for those that reject him, it is eternity without God. They've separated themselves from him in this life. They will be separated from him in eternity. That's the bad news. The good news is for those who have entrusted themselves to Jesus in faith... Jesus comes as a judge and he opens up the Lamb's Book of Life. It's that, that picture in Revelation, the Lamb's Book of Life. And it's a list of those names of people who belong to Jesus, not because they're good people, not because they've done good deeds, but simply because they have placed their faith in Jesus. And on that basis, Jesus welcomes them into his kingdom. We're still going to be deserving of death. And we're going to know on that day that we don't deserve any of this. We deserve that judgment. We deserve that other path. But when we hear our name read out in the Lamb's book of life, it will be the most glorious sound and we'll be ushered into the new creation, into the new heavens and the new earth because we've trusted Christ with our sin 
And he's taken the punishment that we deserved and we've placed our faith in that. We become part of God's kingdom. We become part of his new creation. We're going to talk a bit more about the new creation in a couple of weeks' time as we finish off the series in Isaiah. But I want you to see that that final kingdom that Jesus will bring about, that's the goal of the whole story. And that's the goal of Jesus coming as a warrior. Well, this warrior imagery, Jesus doesn't come as a warrior so he can send people to hell. Jesus doesn't come as a warrior just to be mean to people. He comes as a warrior to establish his eternal kingdom, to establish the kingdom of salvation. That's why back in Isaiah 63, this warrior, God, says, it is I proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Isn't that the whole purpose? He comes to bring salvation, to establish this kingdom of salvation, to establish life to establish a new creation where there will be peace, where there will be shalom. But what Scripture tells us is that kingdom's not going to come without one final great almighty battle. It cannot, because there is too much in this world at the moment that is evil, unjust, and hostile to God. And the bringing about of that final kingdom requires a purging of everything that makes itself an enemy of God. It requires God to deal with everything that stands against his rule and his realm and his kingdom. The kingdom of peace can only come in through this kind of struggle. So in order for Jesus to win that final victory, there has to be that great final battle with all the forces of evil who will finally be overthrown. In principle, they were overthrown at the cross. That, that was when the victory was won. But that will be implemented when Jesus returns and all opposition to his rule will be done away with. And we will finally have the victory of the Lamb. That's how it's described in Revelation. The victory of the Lamb. The Lamb of God. He's still the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundations of the earth. But he will be victorious on that day. And then the great battle cry goes up. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. The reign of God is coming. But it won't be without one final great struggle. And we have the opportunity in this life to align ourselves with the person of Jesus. So that on that day we'd be spared from his judgment spared from his wrath, and brought into the beauty of the new creation. And I want you to see that this picture of Jesus as a warrior is not just something that he is going to do in the future, but it is also who he is now. And as you think about who God is, I want you to let yourself make this image of the warrior part of the way you think about God, not to scare you, Right? Not, to, not to frighten you in any way, but because if you belong to Jesus, there's incredible power in knowing right now that God is a warrior who fights for you. You know, in the present, just think about that. God's the God who fights your battles. He's the warrior king. One day he's going to come in judgment, but he's already there. He's already with you, and he is a warrior. He, he's fought, whatever battles you're fighting this morning, Whatever's going on, whatever circumstances are happening for you, you're struggling, you're up against it, difficult circumstances, difficult people, whatever it is, you can know God is the warrior who is fighting for you right now. You don't have to fight those battles. It belongs to him. You stand your ground. Let God fight for you. Right now, God, you know what God is doing right now? He's restraining the evil one. Because it might feel like you're being attacked, but you've got no idea what the full force of evil would feel like if it was unleashed against you. 
Right now, God is restraining the evil one so that he cannot have full power to attack you. God is standing right now between you and the evil one. And he is your defender. And he is your fortress. And he is your shield. Can you hear all of that battle imagery from the Psalms and other places? It's all yours. So claim it. He's your fortress. He's your rock. He's your defender. Like, see, God is sending his angels to you. Just as Jesus will one day come with the armies of heaven, right now he sends his angels to encamp around you, to protect you, and to strengthen you in the midst of whatever you are facing. God will sustain you. He will defend you. And he will fight your battles for you. He's not only a warrior in the future. He's a warrior today. And if you belong to him, he is fighting for you right now. As we close this morning, I want to finish just with a quote from the C.S. Lewis book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. We all know the story, but isn't it interesting that as C.S. Lewis writes the Narnia Chronicles, the animal or the figure that he chooses for Jesus is a lion. That's a very powerful image when you think about it. Aslan has this real tenderness to him. He has this compassion, but he's still a lion. And he's a warrior, and he is strong, and he fights. And I think C.S. Lewis is saying something profound there. As the children hear about Aslan for the first time, they're given this little poem about who Aslan is. And as I read this, just think of Jesus. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Now that's Jesus. He is our Savior, and he is our Lord, and he is our warrior who fights for us every day. Jesus, we thank you that that's who you are. And as we've talked about these, these difficult images and passages in your word this morning, I know, Lord, that it, it's, it's felt heavy and it's, it's, it's hard to get our heads around these things. But Jesus, I want to pray that as we sit with this image of you as our warrior, it would fill us with hope because we know that you are with us and we know that you are for us. And God, if you are for us, who can be against us? Jesus, we thank you that you are fighting our battles for us that you are greater than any opposition that we face in this life. The one who is within us is greater than the one who is within the world. We thank you, Jesus, that you have power and you are mighty to save. And we look forward to the day, Jesus, when you come again, even though that's going to be a day of judgment and it's going to be a day of conquest. We know, Jesus, that it is going to be a day of great victory, a day when finally spring will be here, winter will be no more, the world will be the way that it was always destined to be in your plan. And we thank you. That is your goal and that is your purpose. So God, I pray that as we think about who you are and we allow the words of Scripture into our souls, that you'd help us to think of you as a warrior and help us to see that in the way that you want us to and not in the distorted ways that our mind or our culture wants us to but to see you as a God who is with us and who is for us and who is fighting our battles. We thank you, Jesus. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. 
Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.